The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Avengers Age of Ultron. Did I get that title right, Matt? I believe you did. No the, right? There's no the. Avengers colon Age colon, of Ultron. Age of Ultron. And the voice you hear with me in the Slate studio is Matt Singer. Hey, Matt. Hi, how's it going? Um, Matt, you are a managing editor at Screen Crush. I am. And <laughs> one of the reasons I wanted to have you, well, I thought of you, first of all, as the right guest for this, because I thought, I want someone who is a comics person, but not the comic book guy, right? And and somebody who sort of knows this whole series, but also kind of can approach it with a certain whimsy. And then, unbeknownst to me, the day before we were going to record, you went to a 24-hour 27-hour. Long... Oh, sorry. Excuse me. 27-hour, yes. more than a Give day long. Give me the long. full credit I deserve for my lunacy. It's a Marvel marathon. 11 covering, movies. Essentially covering uh, Iron Man, the first Iron Man from 2008, all the way through, and including Avengers Age of, Age of Ultron. Correct? That's right. Yes, 11 that some, movies. Some insane uh, theater in New York decided to collaborate with Marvel in, in putting on, right, in advance of the big opening. That's exactly right. And for most of the people there, that, that was the – they were seeing Avengers Age of Ultron for the first time at the end of this thing, at the end of 2014. Four and a half hours or whatever it was. So they were seeing all the official Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, starting with Iron Man, as you said, going through every single one, which can be a a blessing and a curse in some cases. Yeah, I was going to say, in theory, you're very hyped up for the new movie. But then again, maybe you're in a state of complete existential despair (laughs) at that point. So before we get into Ultron, I just I want to hear a little bit about this this marathon experience, because that particular marathon would have probably killed me. I do enjoy a long movie sit like Bellatar's Satin Tango. I have very fond memories of that seven hour long movie and like a tiny little break where it was just enough time to eat a bag of peanuts in, in the middle. Um, so what was it like watching 27 hours of a Marvel product? Well, <laughs> product is an interesting choice of words too, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But it was interesting. You know, I had seen all of these movies before, including, including the new Avengers. But it was kind of interesting to see them all so close together. And I have to say there were things I started picking up on and maybe it was the fact that by the end of it I was in a kind of madness or fugue state. But I did feel like there were things that I was missing before and that they were kind of all of a of a thematic piece. Certainly there's lots of characters crossing over and 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 incidents and they're constantly teasing and that's that's part of what people love about them is that they're made so carefully and to fit all together. But it did seem like over and over again they were returning to a couple of themes. And that was kind of interesting. Was I don't know that seeing them two years apart, I would have kind of picked up on all those similarities that I did. And I was writing a live blog for our, our site as it was going on. And it was kind of interesting to see the same ideas kind of popping up over and, and over again. And what were those ideas? Mostly just – I mean they're not exactly – this isn't, uh, you know, hard, you know, brilliant uh, literature, but – I thought it was kind of interesting how often these movies return to the idea of this line that jumped out at me that I never noticed before in Iron Man 2, which is not a favorite movie of mine of these. But uh, there's a line from the villain where he's accusing Tony Stark of – he says he claims to have created a a shield, but it's actually a sword or something along those lines. And this idea of the the sword versus the shield. Right, the protector versus the aggressor. Versus the aggressor. And that's the idea that keeps coming back up. And you have Captain America with his shield, you know, which is obviously from the comics dating all the way back to the 40s. But the idea that his weapon is a shield. Right. And he believes very strongly in not being aggressive. Uh, He's the guy who, in the new movie, is the one who's like, 
Tony Stark, you're going too far with your Ultron plan. Right. Well, That's and then the Tony Stark idea. from the beginning, right, has always been poised somewhere between the sword and the shield. Right. Because he's a weapons manufacturer. Absolutely. Right. But then he becomes like a nice guy who wants to save the world with his weapons, and that comes up in this movie. It we'll does get to, we'll get to how it comes up, but the ambivalence of him being this weapons right. manufacturer. And after all these movies in that last uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron, towards the end of the movie, there's this big hero moment for Nick Fury and the remnants of S.H.I.E.L.D. and uh, uh, the Quicksilver character I think says something like this is what S.H.I.E.L.D. supposed to be or and, and Captain Marvel is like yes this is what S.H.I.E.L.D. is supposed to be and that whole sequence is about heroism and saving people and I I did think that there uh, it was kind of some kooky master plan that they had engineered all along exploring this idea which again may not be all that uh, brilliant but uh, there's something there which well, I, I mean, appreciate. the one it. consistent voice you could say is behind all these is I don't know how you pronounce his last name but Kevin Kevin Feige, Kevin Feige has, yeah. has produced all these movies right yes. so it, to the extent that there's like a person pulling the strings of this whole series it's him yes and i you could say that he actually believes this stuff and he maybe he is sort of an auteur for the franchise or you could just say Look, it's a formula they found in the first movie. It worked really well, and they just decided to repeat it. Like, it could all just be a commercial thing. But I think it's there. I absolutely think it's well, there. Well, it's being commercial doesn't preclude it's having, like, themes and a tone and, absolutely. you know, some kind of consistency. That's true. All right, so let's get into Ultron itself. Um, yeah, okay, now now that you've been talking about ten different movies, I can't even remember where we start with this movie. But, all right, so this is the second movie with the full crowd of the Avengers, yes. right? Uh, like, the first one is directed by Joss Whedon of television creation fame, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, etc. And uh, I I wanted to hear, first of all, just your general reaction. Just sort of take your temperature on it, and then we'll start spoiling. You know, I really enjoyed it the first time I saw it, and I saw it again, and I I still enjoyed it. And having seen it at the end of 25 hours of movies and, and having just seen it a week before, I still really got a kick out of it. And there are definitely things about it that I kind of looking forward to discussing with you that I'm not really sure I, even after two viewings, fully understand, like what Ultron's kind of plans or goals are. But there are things about it that I really enjoy. And most of it is is the Joss Whedon stuff, that the dialogue, the kind of banter between the characters, uh, the the sense of camaraderie and friendship and teamwork with all the characters. Being a, a comic book reader since I was a kid, you really feel that he appreciates these characters and loves them and is kind of putting the best versions of them on screen. And it, it is a hoot to kind of see Captain America have a conversation with Bruce Banner or to have Bruce Banner start to get into a relationship with Black Widow. And I think all that stuff is a lot of fun. And I also really like the final sequence, not so much for the action, which is great, too, I guess. But that idea that this movie is about what a hero is supposed to be, right, that Ultron has sort of put forward this challenge are you the Avengers worthy, right? There's this great fun scene in the beginning of the movie that they're all trying to lift Thor's hammer, which oh, supposedly... Yeah. I want to get to that. Let's slow down and talk about that for a second okay. because we also need to define who Ultron is for people yes. who have not or may not see the movie. Uh, and it's not quite clear at times who or what Ultron is or what his moral valence is. Yes. Um, but yes, I completely agree that it's the kibitzing and the banter that make this all worthwhile. That's what Whedon does best. Yes. And those are the moments that for a non-comics reader like me, I see what's appealing about the comic in the first place, right? I mean, if you see a bad badly directed superhero movie, you just think like, this is just dumb. Who could ever care about this subject matter? But he rescues what there is of, you know, the sort of the human Mm. in these characters. What made me sad, though, and maybe I just had gone in knowing too much and I had read a lot about him leaving the Marvel franchise, Whedon, I mean, and deciding to go do other things because essentially he had a traumatic experience on this movie. And I just couldn't help feeling like those moments of banter were like little beautiful islands that were trapped in oceans of essentially corporately mandated action. Yeah, there certainly are moments in this one where you can feel they're setting up whatever 
is coming next. And that's always a, a big part to some extent. And uh, definitely watching the 11 movies altogether, you do see the movies where they're allowed to breathe on their own. Generally, those are the better installments. The movies that have a lot of shopkeeping business, they have to set up things. Those can be the more problematic ones. Right. It's and, like the Star Wars where there's international space councils talking about trade agreements, right? It doesn't quite get that boring in the Marvel universe, but there is definitely a lot of setup. Bookkeeping. And, and that sort of happens here in that it's really obvious that a lot of characters are being crammed in so that we have vague facial recognition of who they are for mm-hmm. some future installment, especially toward the end. It's just like there's a new magical person being thrown at your face every five minutes. Yes. And, and I, the whole subplot involving Thor... Uh, it seems like it's kind of shoehorned in to set up the next Avengers, which involves this infinity, the infinity gauntlet and the uh, the infinity stones I and all that, that jazz. I love that the next two-part installment is called Infinity War. Yes. It's just it's such an invitation to critics. It's, <laughs> it's so good when they give us a title like that. But, but yeah, okay. Thor's, Thor's, Thor's involvement, he kind of goes, I have to go do something and flies off and goes and... He gets in a pool for some reason, has a vision, and and uh, and then he's he finds out about these stones that they've already been teasing for several years. But he finally, uh, I guess, uncovers the truth and whatnot. But it it definitely feels shoehorned in for the purposes of setting the table for future things. For a future Thor, right? Yeah. Okay, but let's go back and talk about who and what Ultron is um, and why it is his age all of a sudden. Well, Ultron is this essentially just like a uh, is it? I guess he's an alien AI that's sort of also created by. Tony Stark and Bruce Banner, it is sort of hard to kind of... Basically, they find like a really smart AI space cloud. Yes, (laughs) inside Loki's scepter from the first movie. If you saw the first movie, he had that crazy scepter with the gem on it. And inside that stone, that blue thing, is is some kind of uh, like blueprint, I guess for an AI, which Tony Stark and Bruce Banner try to create. But then there's a very Frankenstein kind of element to Absolutely. it, right? Where there's a, there's a tension between Banner and Stark about what to do with this blue cloud. Yes. And Tony Stark, in his crazy, you know, I'm going to solve the world's problems kind of way, decides, oh, I'm going to make this a shield that'll surround the entire I world. Put a, I want to put a suit of armor around the world. And the I world will is... be safe forever, and that's a great idea, and there's no way, no way it will possibly go wrong. <laughs> and then while they go off to this party, right? So essentially they set Ultron going, and right. they're like, okay, that's It's set. not working. They're, they claim that they, they have haven't quite cracked it, but the computer is still running tests. It's sort of or like it's in the oven. Like, okay, that's yeah. in the oven. The timer's on. Let's go have a party. And then the party scene, which gets sadly gets cut short by a big attack from Ultron, and yes. then and turns into an action scene. But it's it's so delightful to just see the Avengers hanging out in a luxurious loft, yeah. getting drunk yep. and having fun. And the scene that you mentioned of everybody trying to lift Thor's hammer, right. and it's sort of like a bar game, right? Like, yes. I bet you can't do it. Yeah. And uh, and then of course that comes up later in a callback because along comes. Later on, spoiler, Paul Bettany is the Vision, one of yes. the new characters, and he effortlessly picks up the hammer and hands it to Thor. Like, let's go. Right. And it's a great moment. And uh, it's actually, that was one of the big, at, with the crowd last night, got one of the biggest reactions was when he just casually picks up the hammer and right. hands it to Thor. And Thor gives him a, a look. Everyone's like, ah, it was, it's a lot Here's of fun. Here's some metaphysical confusion on my part. So yes. Paul Bettany, the Vision, who Correct. is this purple floating man who emerges at the end of the movie, kind of is Jarvis, right? Jarvis being the intelligent computer that's been helping Iron Man all along. Basically, like the the voice that he talks to, and right, and his commands. computer, yeah. yeah. But his his computer that sort of like does everything for him, right? Yes. Puts his suit together and all that stuff. So Jarvis somehow undergoes embodiment and becomes Paul Bettany. Sort of, yes. But they also he's sug- always been voiced by Paul Bettany. He's always been voiced by Paul Bettany. This is the first time we've actually seen him on screen in a physical body. 
Yeah, that's another thing that I'm not 100% clear on. But they do say in the movie that it's not quite Jarvis. Like he's somehow gone through a transformation as part of this this birthing that mm. he has become the vision that he isn't Jarvis. I think they want to make it clear that they, they just don't want people to call him Jarvis. As I, I suspect the reason. They don't want people going, oh, look, it's Jarvis, the robot. Mm-hmm. They don't want – he's the vision now, right? So the idea is that he has some of Jarvis's core whatever, inner workings, his guts, but that – through this process where Ultron has a hand in making him and also Tony Stark and Bruce Banner and Thor, who gives him kind of the last, you know, almost the Dr. Frankenstein lightning bolt, right, right. To, to, to revive the body, that he is sort of this this creature that's co- sort of cobbled together from a bunch of different sources. Right. So we have two separate, basically. There's two different giant AI's robots. AIs that became embodied. Yeah. And, and, and after, um, what's his name, Ultron becomes embodied, he's voiced by James Spader excellently. I yes. love that voice. But he looks really boring, I think. He We're just looks like look. your standard robot metal guy. He does kind of. I mean, I think they're, to some extent, they're sort of being faithful to the comic books, which can, you know, you could say, well, he looks the way he's supposed to look if you really care about that, which I don't actually care. Or you can say, yeah, he's kind of boring. And after we just had a really interesting AI robot in Ex Machina, you know, uh, that robot looks so fascinating. I didn't see Ex Machina. Oh, it's so great to look at that robot. It's so interesting that this robot, yeah, it's just a big metal guy. You know, it definitely doesn't quite quite the same curiosity factor that that one did. And doesn't live up to the richness of Spader's vocal vocal performance, I don't think. Yeah, I'm still not 100% clear what his plan is. I know what his end game becomes, but I'm not entirely sure what whether that was his goal all along or if that's a improvisation after the Avengers come and stop Wait, wait, him. what a second. What, whether, what was whose goal? <laughs> Ultron's goal. Uh, you know, obviously he wants to destroy the world or he keeps talking about evolving humanity and all these sorts of things. But then at the end, what he basically wants to do is kind of recreate the meteor that killed the dinosaurs, right? He's putting this big floating part of the city, this Eastern European city. Savokia. Sokovia. Sokovia, Sokovia, Yeah, whatever it is. He lifts it up off the ground and he's going to drop it back to Earth. And, you know, like the dinosaurs were killed by a meteor or whatever, that this is going to recreate that and that he's destroying the world. And but that this he has a God complex kind of right. Like he's not sure. Should I be good? Should I be bad? What do I do? And then he just has this nihilist moment of just like, fuck it. We're just starting all over. (laughs) Right. But that's the thing. Like, I'm not really sure if that's what he's always doing all along, because they talk about him wanting to get nuclear codes, but he's having trouble doing that. That also gets back to Jarvis. Supposedly Jarvis was stopping him getting the nuclear codes, which is something I missed the first time through. Yeah, it, there's a, it's a lot going on uh, with Ultron. I'm not entirely sure I fully get right, it. Let, I've let's seen leave it the plot in suspense. We okay. know there's Infinity Stones and there's intelligent, artificially intelligent Bad guys. He just wants to kill everybody. But like, let's get to the Avengers themselves and t- mm-hmm. just to go through like some of your favorite moments from this movie with, you know, these character kibitzing moments that you were saying. Are, they're kind of what makes it. Yeah. Well, that scene we already mentioned is really great where they're picking up Thor's or attempting to pick up Thor's hammer. The idea being there's some kind of uh, mystical uh, spell on it that only the person who is worthy to carry Thor's hammer can pick it up. And they all try to do it and no one can do it. And I did like the fact that that was a theme that's threaded through the movie, right? Ultron interrupts them and he's like, you think you're really worthy. You know, you're all puppets. You are all you, – you want the world to uh, – you, you want to make the world a better place but you don't want it to change. You know, all these sorts of things. And then that's all threaded through the movie at the end when the Avengers get to act like heroes and save people. And that's the other thing that I really liked about the Avengers themselves is that that big final battle – yeah, there's lots of in the floating city of in Sokovia. the floating city of Sokovia. Yeah, there's lots of action and computer effects and all that jazz. But the Avengers are just as much invested in protecting the innocent lives that are 
involved as they are beating up the robots. Although, can I just say, they did sure. a really crappy job evacuating that city. There's this moment that Captain America and all of them are sort of getting together and saying, we've got to get everybody out of the city so that we can have this cosmic battle without harming a single civilian. And then they, they just got started too late or something. It's like, we need an Avenger <laughs> whose who's superpower is logistics. You can just, like, get the evacuation done. Right? Because there's, like, children clinging to the edge of the city as right, it's lifted right. up from the from the ground. Right. You're, you're right. They, they probably could have done a better job. I think an Avenger of a logistics is something they might want to look into before the Infinity War gets the started. The managing Avenger. Right. But then they wouldn't have any civilian lives at stake. So That's they a wouldn't good point. Have that big fight. So, oh, so let's talk about some of the new, let's talk about the twins, um, the, the magic twins that come along. Elizabeth yes. Olsen as the Scarlet Witch mm-hmm. and uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson, an actor I have never liked as her brother, Pietro Not one of my Maximoff. favorites either. Yeah. I, I wasn't crazy about them, uh, to be honest with you. I, I feel like they're, they're not really a, a great addition. They don't add a ton. Certainly, if you're a comic book fan, if you know the characters, yeah, it's fun to see them. But I didn't really think their their characterization was was all that interesting. And not to get too nerdy here, but I think they're somewhat hamstrung by the fact that they're, they're, the characters in the comic books uh, have a more elaborate and different backstory that involves the X-Men and Magneto. They're supposedly... Well, I was going to ask, is that Quicksilver the same Quicksilver that we saw in the last X-Men movie? Well, same character? it is theoretically from the comic books. Yeah, they're both playing the same character, but they're playing different versions of him, right? Because the X-Men Quicksilver is a different guy than the... He's not a brooding Russian twin. Right, right exactly. Yeah, he was kind of a loudmouth, uh, arrogant He was great. Guy. He was the best part of that movie. He was, and I think that's the other problem with this Quicksilver is that they don't find anything for him to do that really tops the big set piece he had in, in the X-Men. You already had that great set piece where he was, everything was moving in slow Super motion. slow motion. That was the was best fabulous. Scene. That's all I remember about that movie. That was a great sequence. But they sequence. killed him off at the end of this. And you were saying, this is something I wanted to ask you about your marathon yeah. write-up, your live blog. You say that death in the Marvel Universe is about as permanent as a manicure. And I wanted you to go back and revisit some of the people. Of course, this is true to comic books themselves. But some of the people that have been kicked off and then come back to life, are they trying to have some consistency there? It is true to the comic books. Death in comic books is not a permanent thing. It's sort of a way to boost sales, basically. You have an event, you kill someone off, and then you bring them back, and it's, you know... I think it's really... They use it as a way to sort of revitalize characters, to take them off... Didn't Archie just die? Wasn't there, like, a a brand of Archie Archie comics where he died? Almost every character in comic books, if you name a famous character, they have died and come back to life. And (laughs) The Peanuts. The Peanuts were all mowed down. (laughs) (laughs) The Peanuts may be an exception. I I can't recall the death of, of Charlie Brown. But there's an idea. They may want to jump on that. It's, you know, that could happen soon. So, yeah, it's, it is something they do in comic books. But when you watch 11 movies in a row, it's something that does become kind of more glaringly obvious is that almost every movie ends with someone seemingly dying and then coming back to life. You know, in the Thor sequel, Loki has this very dramatic sacrifice. And then by the end of the movie already, he's back. You know, in Captain America... Uh, Bucky, Captain America's best friend, uh, sacrifices himself, you know, in this big battle scene. It's a big dramatic moment. And then he's the villain of the next movie, of the Winter Soldier. He comes back to life. And that happens time and time again. So, yes, Quicksilver does die in this movie. And that could be because th- there is another Quicksilver out there. And I, they maybe that... They're, I wonder if they're just... There's a, a flowchart on a whiteboard somewhere <laughs> at Disney Marvel where they're mapping this all out. Yeah. I, so I thought maybe they killed him off specifically because they don't. it's already confusing why there's two of them floating around in these movies. But uh, I wouldn't shock me if in the next movie somehow they figure out a way. I mean, that's that's comic books and that's comic book movies too. You also did mention that at this marathon, the, the, the character that got the loudest applause when he first appeared was, uh, was Clark Gregg's Agent Coulson, right. who has apparently died for good, right? Well, that's what the funny thing, right? Because Joss Whedon has said, 
Well, in my mind, he's he's dead, but he's the main character on this TV show, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is produced by Marvel and is supposedly connected to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as they call it. And in fact, at the marathon, they were running ads for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the like the theme, the tagline of these ads was everything is connected. You know, that that's what they're selling is this huge tapestry of stories. So it is a bit odd that Joss Whedon is like... In my mind, he's dead, and he doesn't appear in Avengers. And his, I guess what he, his rationalization is, well, in the movies, he's dead. But on the TV show, he's alive still. So, And if the TV show is supposed to take place in the same universe. Maybe it's like quantum mechanics where TV and movies have different you know, physical laws that apply. But there's another character, though, that died and came back to life. So it's just, you know, I, I guess it's not that big of a deal except for the fact that it does kind of become something that – Lowers the stakes, I think. When when no one can really die, what, you know, what are we really worried about if everything is is, is easily erased and rewritten? Right. I think no, I think it pro- lowers the stakes big time. And I completely agree with you, by the way, that one of the best, maybe to my mind, maybe my favorite of all these movies was the first Captain America, mm-hmm. the one set during World War II. And part of why I like that movie is that it had high stakes, you know? I mean, when he lost everyone, when he was frozen for 80 years and everybody he knew died— they didn't come back, you know, except right. in fantasy sequences, or I guess as a villain, okay, one of them came back. But there was a real sense that Steve Rogers had lost a world. Yes. You know, and that he was formed by that loss, and that sort of comes up in this movie. Chris Evans really kills as that character, by the way. It's such a hard character to play, just an unproblematically so nice, patriotic guy. Right. It's really impressive. I mean, he really has taken a character who, like you said, can be in the wrong hands, a very bland one note, goody goody guy, and has somehow made him really interesting without making him snarky or modernizing him. He is very much sort of the the best version of that character. This incredibly uh, noble, humane, uh, well intentioned guy who just wants to do the right thing and, and is trying to clean up everyone's language. You know, there's yes. all these sweet little moments like that. He's like a Sunday school guy. <laughs> yeah, it's he is really great, and and he he's fantastic. And I agree with you that the the arc that he goes on. In that first Captain America movie is so great, and it and and that ending of that first one where he's like his he has that one of the best lines in the whole all eleven movies where he's he's where Nick Fury asks him like what's the matter and he's like I I had a date he missed his date with his girl and now she's still alive but she's ninety years old and she's you know got dementia it's it's really kind of sweet and touching actually and yeah I agree that's one of the few really resonant characters that I really enjoy from these movies that I, I I hope continues. He's kind of threatened at some point he may be sick of doing these Marvel movies, but I always look forward to seeing more of him. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Okay, so another rela- couple of relationships I want to talk about before we wrap. One of them is the uh, the burgeoning romance between Natasha Romanoff, Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow character, and uh, and the Hulk. It's crazy. Was, was this being planted in earlier movies? I don't remember. Uh, you know, having rewatching the first movie in this context of watching 11 of them, they do send uh, I always I want to call her Scarlet Witch because she's Scarlett Johansson. It's very confusing to me. They do send the Black Widow to recruit the Hulk in the first movie. She's the one who Nick Fury sends to bring Bruce Banner into the team. Mm-hmm. And in the, in this new movie, she even asks Nick Fury, did you plan this all along? Did you know this was going to happen? And he kind of hems and haws. But that is kind of an interesting little seed that they plant that, yeah, maybe that maybe it was Nick Fury's plan all along. Not, I don't know, to get them together, but but just that he kind of understood that uh, this the beauty and the beast dynamic, I suppose you could right. say. And it is sort of, it does kind of come to the forefront in this in this movie in an interesting way. I did watching it again, realize that's kind of a smart thing that Joss Whedon does is all those other characters have their own movies, right? Iron Man, uh, Thor, 
Captain America, mm-hmm. they have their own franchises. That's where their stories go on. And in terms of character development, the characters he focuses on in Avengers 2 are the ones that don't have their own franchises. Yeah, Jeremy Hawkeye, Renner, right. Right, and, and Black Widow and Hulk. And I thought that was very smart the way he does that, is that those are the characters that can grow, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the ones he focuses on. And I really liked Jeremy Renner, Hawkeye's storyline in this. I thought that was an, an interesting, surprising development that they right. brought to so it. Right, so it turns out we should reveal that he, um, he he takes him to a safe house, which is his own house. He just has a farm, <laughs> and he lives with Linda Cardellini from Freaks and Geeks. To me, she's still from Freaks and Geeks. Absolutely. Because I don't watch Med Men. But uh, love Linda Cardellini, and uh, and has a kid, and is about to have another kid. Several and, kids, two kids, and one's on the way. Yeah, you're right. There's little, little Hawkeyes running around everywhere. <laughs> And that's just such an unexpected domestic reveal for his character. And then, of course, I say this in my review, but I still think it's true. Linda Cardellini gets the best line in the movie. You, you know, know, I, I totally fully support, support your, your avenging. avenging. Yes, great, <laughs> just great like line. the the wife of the Avenger. It's so great, left behind. Yeah, and and he definitely got the 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 short shrift in the first one, the first Avengers, where Hawkeye was really just kind of a puppet of Loki. He was mind controlled the whole time. And I liked that in this movie. They really uh, explore the question, why is this guy who has no superpowers, who's a guy with a bow and arrow, why is he on the team? And why does the Avengers need this guy when they've got a Hulk and a Thor and a Captain America and an Iron Man? And it gets back to that idea of heroism, that this guy is selfless and that he is doing this. He calls, he says, this is my job, right? And that he looks at it that way, but that he's dedicated. And he has a great speech he gives to the Scarlet Witch towards the end of the film about, you know, if you're doing this, you got to do it. You know, I don't have time to uh, look after you, you know, if you want to yeah, stay here. that reminded me of an old war movie. That was almost like something that you would yeah. see in a World War II movie. Like, right, right they're kind of huddled, you know, right. under fire in this, like, temporarily safe right. little hut. And he basically says to her, like, you can be in the war or you can be, like— Right. You know, a we damsel can, in distress that I'm defending. We can save you or you right. can fight. Right. But right. you can't be halfway. You got to right. commit. You got to. This is the job. This is the whole thing. And then and he says, like, you know, the city is floating and I have a bow and arrow. None of this makes any sense. But you do, by the end of the movie, I felt like really understand his place here as this human element. Right. All the other guys have all this crazy stuff going on. He's kind of a counterbalance. Well, he has a family all life. All Scarlett Johansson really has is just like being a good fighter. Right. Does she have anything else? She besides? has this uh, backstory that they still haven't really fully revealed that they're alluding to where she was sort of, I don't want to say tortured, but certainly kind of conditioned, trained in this weird way to become the ultimate Oh, assassin. yeah. And you see her with Julie, Julie Delpy. Julie Delpy right? as her teacher. And it's a little bit like the Americans. I mean, basically, Absolute- she's, she's Russian and she's being brainwashed and Absolutely. turned into a killing machine. Absolutely. And, and so... And, and she keeps alluding to this dark history that she has, that perhaps she committed acts that, you know, she's not proud of or that could come to light and would, you know, stain her reputation or whatever. Oh, and we also learned, this is really intense, that she was sterilized. Yes. Right? And that also the Hulk, I guess, being like a strange guy who can turn giant and green cannot have children either. Well, I think what Bruce Banner is saying there is that he can't be around kids because he could lose his he right. lose control and hurt them. What do you mean you're not picking up your blocks? And they're... <laughs> And there is the, a scene in the Incredible Hulk movie from earlier where Edward – when it's Edward Norton playing the Hulk, he's trying to make love to Liv Tyler's character and says he can't because he can't get too excited. That if and he that were... actually becomes like a, the Twilight problem, right? Which that's the tension between Scarlett Johansson and Mark Ruffalo in this yes. movie is that like he can't get too excited, right? Exactly. Or he might so get I think big maybe and that's the sort of – that's why he can't have kids is that maybe physiologically if he attempted to, he would turn into the Hulk. I, I hope we get some more of that romance in a future movie. It, when it first reared its head, I thought, this is so formulaic. They're just trying to get the two of them together because Scarlett Johansson's hot. But then it somehow really worked, and Mark Ruffalo is so wonderful. He really needs his own movie. It's the Hulk. It's sad he, he never got one because he's the best Hulk. Yeah, he's he is really good. And I agree with you. They, they really pull it off. And I don't think, I could be wrong, you might get angry emails if I'm wrong, but I don't think those those 
characters have ever had a romantic relationship in the comic books, but they really work because they they do have these incompatibility issues. So it has that sort of impossible love thing that makes it a lot of fun to watch them be like, we should, no, we shouldn't, we and can't. And even this talk at the end that they might run off together before yes. the big battle, which would have been crazy. Like, what if we just took off together and then they don't, of course, they stay and fight. Because they're heroes. It gets back to that idea that they have to uh, they have to be heroes and do the right thing. But Bruce Banner has that ongoing dilemma of he wants to do the right thing, but he's so nervous about hurting people as the Hulk because he can't really control the Hulk. And there's that big fight between Iron Man and Hulk where he is manipulated by the Scarlet Witch, which sort of proves his point that if he's controlled, he's very dangerous. And Right. And there's like a lot of um, civilian damage and things that he doesn't want to happen. And right. that like the, the furrowed moral brow of Mark Ruffalo is just the best <laughs> Gre- green or no. Um, so, Matt, we should wrap soon. But before we do, let's just give a general sense of whether this movie as a freestanding object, even if you have never sat through a 27 hour marathon or seen any of the others, <laughs> is something that people should go see. And then maybe because you have the list in front of you, as I see, sprawling across an entire piece of paper, maybe talk about the future of coming Marvel movies and how this will fit into uh, the next couple. I I do like the uh, Avengers franchise. And I I think if you like the first movie, the first Avengers, and you didn't see any of the others, I think you would still enjoy this one. You know, I I think it's, it's entertaining. It's fun. You know, that it has a lot of those fun character moments. I don't necessarily think you have to have seen all 11 previous movies. And there are a bunch of those movies, the previous 11, that I would not recommend. But The I, Dark World is the only one I haven't seen. That's that a very marathon, skippable movie. Yeah. The Dark World is, it is a dark world indeed. When you're watching 27 hours and you have to sit through the Dark World again, that's a very, very dark place. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a fun movie. I think it's a little bit more nerdy than the last one. It gets into weirder places, you know, with Scarlet Witches and Visions. And I have a feeling the casual moviegoer might be a little less enamored with this one than the first one. I think the first one was a little more accessible. But I still think if you like the first one, I think this delivers on the fun of that in a, in a in a pretty significant way. And it's your last chance to see a Joss Whedon Marvel movie, which to me, I mean, yes. having his name on it, and I'm not even a Buffy person, or I'm not like some huge fan of his television. I don't know it that well, but he can just write a good dialogue scene, and he obviously knows and loves the characters. That just comes through in the, the, the script. I'm a little worried about Avengers 3, Infinity War, without Joss Whedon to really pull it together, because these are such crazy undertakings with all these characters, and they're only going to get more complicated. And there's just starting to be, like, logistical traffic jams of superheroes. Okay, yeah. so let's go through a few of them. So Infinity War, parts one and two, is going to be the next That's the set. next Avengers movie. Oh, but there's more in between. Oh. Okay, okay. Oh, Did, my goodness, list, yes. Your list, read it to me. Well, there's another movie coming out this summer, Ant-Man. Comes right. out in July. That was going to be an Edgar Wright movie, and it's oh, now not. What a, so what a sad. tragedy! I know. Who took over after he left? Peyton Reed, who's not a bad filmmaker and has made some fun comedies, and it was, I believe, co-written by Paul Rudd, who's the star, and also Adam McKay, who's one of my favorite comedy filmmakers. So you hope that it's at least going to be fun. And none of the cast changed when Edgar Wright left as director, right? I, there may have been one or two minor changes, but I mean, Paul Rudd was was Edgar Wright's choice, and he's still involved, and Michael Douglas is is still involved. So yeah, for the most part, the cast remained the same. I mean, because they have these crazy logistical calendars that they have to meet, they don't have a lot of time to right. uh, replace people. So it was kind of a, all right, Edgar Wright's gone, now who are we going to bring in? It was a kind of a frenzied, rushed thing. But Paul, yeah, that comes Paul out Rudd in July. Man, I'm still excited for that. I like that casting. Okay, what's next? And then after that, just next year, basically... Every May, early May now belongs to Marvel. They put out a new movie every May. And next May is Captain America Civil War, which is the third Captain America movie, but is also going to have Tony Stark's Iron Man. And they're going to be fighting. There's a little squabbling in Avengers 2. And I think that's sort of starting to set the stage for 
even more squabbling. Oh, so they're, so they're going to go from like backbiting to civil war. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Like full on, full on battling potentially. Yeah. That's so. That's next May. Then there's Doctor Strange, which is a totally new character that we haven't seen before. I Not think, new, new though. Either sure, new books, to the right? movies. Mm-hmm. He's been around for decades in the comic books. He's sort of a sorcerer, mystical. Who's going to play him? I believe it's Benedict Cumberbatch, mm-hmm. which sounds fun to me. Um, I hope I got that right. And then after that, the next one after that is Guardians of the Galaxy 2 in May of 2017. And then there's still like potentially two more movies before the next Avengers. And then there's three more movies after that. So like what I sat through yesterday was 11 movies that they made in seven years. This list that I have in front of me is 11 movies in the next four years. So there's a, it's escalating. See, to me, just even pondering that slate of upcoming movies makes me feel older than Gilgamesh. <laughs> I mean, maybe some of them will be good, but just the fact that it's all programmed out, I just it just feels like an existential plod into the void. And it's, well, it's a lot of movies. I mean, as a movie fan and a comic book fan, I do look forward to a lot of these. But I wonder at a certain point after I've seen three – I mean, at some point in 2017 and 2018, they're planning three movies a year. You know, I mean, even for me, that might be a lot. We're going to see. I mean, I, I hope that I still have this much enthusiasm after I've watched the next 11 movies. Not but... to mention that at that point, the climate will probably be such that we need actual superheroes. Like, we'll be <laughs> wading to the theater, rowing boats. That's right. And don't forget this also, that this doesn't include movies like Batman versus Superman. There's a whole additional universe of DC characters that you're going to have to endure as well. So this is just, this is merely the tip of the nerd iceberg that is about to col- crash into the pop cultural Titanic. Well, I hope that, that whenever the next one comes out, what is it again? Ant-Man? Will, will you come back in and talk about it with uh, I would love to. Sure. That's, yes, July. July July 17th. All right. Well, we'll see you then. All right. Our producer is Mike Bolo. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.